know this works if you can deliver on what you're promising. So if you get a sponsor like this and you don't deliver results, like none of this matters, mm -hmm. right? And now like five years later, we basically grew the sponsorship revenue from when we started to more than 10X to more than like half a million a year. It was a huge change. Hey everyone, welcome to Supercasters. I'm Jason Suhoy, co-founder and CEO of Supercast. And on this show, we interview world-class podcasters, deconstruct their growth strategies, and find out how they build sustainable, independent businesses that thrive on a strong relationship with their listeners. Today, we're talking to Sachit Gupta, who's spent a decade helping creators to grow their platforms. And when I say creators, I mean people like Tim Ferriss, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and Seth Godin. Sachet's now the program director for the On Deck Podcaster Fellowship, and I'm very proud to be able to announce that Supercast is the founding monetization partner for the very first cohort of podcasters going through that program. So to find out more, Sachet, welcome to the show. Jason, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's funny, we met for the first time before you were at Supercast, before I even had a podcast, at an on-deck retreat when you could do those kinds of things in person last year. So it's, it's, it's really cool sort of how both our careers have evolved and we're now here. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, it's actually one of the greatest things about on-deck, I think, is just the power of the network and, um, you know, the synergistic opportunities that, that come about that don't necessarily present themselves, you know, at the time. But... You know, we're getting a little bit of a hit ourselves. So, so maybe just to wind back for all the people that don't know what on deck is, could you maybe tell a little bit about you know how on deck got started and, and what that is? Definitely, on deck um, very simply is where talented people go to explore what's next. So, on deck was started about five years ago by Eric Torenberg, who was the number one employee at Product Hunt, and he was exploring what he wanted to do next. So, he wanted to bring together people who were in the similar boat not necessarily ready to do YC um, and like raise funding and stuff, just sort of like have those conversations in a safe space. And he did dinners and, and lunches like all over the world for four years before launching the first Founder Fellowship, which was more of a compressed eight week sort of community. And I was actually part of that cohort, um, which is how we met. And honestly, like just the, the, the way the community gelled together, the way everyone showed up with this idea of giving before receiving and the spirit of service just blew me away. And then, so, so that's how it's evolved. And this year we did our eighth, or I think next, next gen is the eighth founder fellowship. And then the team started looking at sort of like what are adjacent things and verticals we could expand into in terms of what would be the most beneficial for founders. Um, so the first thing was founders need capital, which launched the angel fellowship. And then founders need distribution or want people, need people to hear about what they're doing, which led to the launch of the writer and the um, podcaster fellowship. And since then, there's now like fellowships in different verticals, uh, fellowships across like different functions like design, which is I think launching next week. Um, and really like what, what OnDeck is sort of like becoming is this umbrella brand for people who want to explore what's next. They want to do it with in a community of peers uh, surrounded by experts. And yeah, it's just uh, it, it's sort of like the next generation like talent incubator. 
Yeah, I love that. And uh, Sacha had already hinted at the fact that uh, we met during the very first cohort when when Sacha was going through uh, the program. And I got connected with On Deck actually through my wife. Uh, my my wife is also in the startup space. She's a previous founder, and she was you know exploring what was next for her and wanted to be amongst uh, you know a, a group of equally you know ambitious people starting a new business, a new startup. And so she went through the second cohort of On Deck and through living vicariously, uh, I guess, you know, I got to go through and experience that with her, this community where you're, yeah, you're coming to kind of get knowledge and to meet other people that are going through the same journey and to listen to mentors and fireside chats and all of this sort of stuff. But, you know, what you take from it is, is I can only describe as, you know, like far more than that. You know, the, the beauty of the on-deck network is it it goes well beyond, you know, the eight weeks that uh, the official program lasts for and the number of people that have reached out to me post, you know, me doing Supercast uh, or the number of people that I've, you know, when I've thought of, hey, you know, I'd love to reach out to someone at Spotify or, you know, Apple or something like that. I've gone and searched the on-deck directory and been able to find somebody within the on-deck community that, that gives me a leg up with that connection is just amazing. And it, it still blows my mind that you and I in that first, very first cohort before you were doing this and before I was doing Supercast, we'd already kind of connected around, you know, podcasting. Oh, yeah. One of the things that you mentioned that uh, is one of my favorite parts about sort of like being part of On Deck is the directory. And I love that anecdote that you shared uh, of like being able to like search for anyone. They're actually now like, instead of going to LinkedIn, I will first go to like On Deck to see if they're, the person is already in the directory if I'm going to read, if I want to read someone because the context of that intro, like just message is so much more um, than like emailing someone cold. Absolutely. And I actually, I've never approached anyone within the on deck community who hasn't responded or who hasn't, you know, done their very best to, to kind of help facilitate uh, something. So very much, uh, you know, appreciate that spirit of service that, that on deck has helped to foster. Um, so I'd love to, you know, find out a little bit more about, you know, your new role with, with on deck. Can you tell us a bit about the on deck podcaster fellowship? Yeah. So for, for me, like I, I'm looking at the podcaster fellowship as sort of that like next generation incubator to train the next generation of podcasting talent. So as I mentioned, I, I did the first founder fellowship. And then out of that, instead of starting a company, I started, ended up starting a podcast in December that launched and we sort of like did growth stuff that we'll get into that it really hit the charts. And honestly, like after a little bit, I pulled away. I kind of like stopped doing it because as we've talked about, podcasting is is a sort of like a, or any creative field is a very like lonely endeavor, right? Like you're doing it yourself. Don't necessarily have a community of peers that's around you that are doing the same thing or, or experts that you can learn from. So with the Podcaster Fellowship, we're trying to bring together this mix of like curriculum and community. So we'll have best practices in terms of how to start a show, how to do growth, how to do monetization. If you already have a show, how to keep getting better at the craft. And then that's supported by a lot of amazing expert guests, Jason Calacanis, Anthony Pompliano, Harry Stebbings, who've just been in the podcasting world for a long time and sort of like bringing their insights. And like, I'm personally as a podcaster, super excited to sort of like reverse and interview them about how they podcast and sort of really just like deconstruct that. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, you know, those are definitely some of my heroes, you know, within the podcasting world as well and the people that, um, you know, kind of, I admire them for the, the their quality of shows. Even as a partner, I'm excited to be able to, to, to listen in on some of the stuff that um, they're going to be sharing with the cohort. In terms of, you know, your own story, how did you get into podcasting? 
Yeah, so this started almost 10 years ago. I had done college, worked at a corporate job, didn't like it, all of that stuff, and then basically moved to San Francisco and I wanted to start working with entrepreneurs that I was inspired by. And I just started cold emailing a bunch of companies. I think I probably sent hundreds of cold emails over the period of one year. And one of them was to Andrew Warner, who is the host of Mixergy. And I was basically said, hey, um, I really like, I'm inspired by what you're doing. I'll work with you for free. Just give me a shot and I'll like, like to prove myself. And basically it took a couple of months. And then finally he like hired me for a two hour project first, enjoyed what I, how I did it. And then hired me for two weeks, a couple of months later, that two weeks turned into two months. And then that turned into a sort of like a client relationship that lasted over eight years. So I pitched him with the, this sort of like context of like, hey, this is my background in terms of marketing. Looking back, I'm like, I don't really know much about marketing actually at that <laughs> point. Um, it was so, so like primitive, but basically it was like, I, I would help you get your show to more people. I remember one of the ideas actually I pitched him was Mixergy's talking about entrepreneurs. Why isn't like a, a sort of like a subset of Mixergy interviews part of every college curriculum in the entrepreneurship class. So it was just like him coming to the table with ideas like that. Instead of instead of saying like, give me a job, it was more like, hey, here are like three ideas. Can I help you execute right. on them? And so like once I started, I worked on things like helping him systemize the company, helping doing marketing, helping build like tech backends for like programs he was developing. So sort of like did a wide variety of stuff, which is really where I learned the sort of like backend of like operating a successful content company and a podcast until we sort of like started specializing. And there was one part where I remember Andrew had sponsors on his show and I had sent him an email about something completely unrelated and just got the sense that like he didn't want to do sponsorship. And I was like, hey, um, I think I could do a better job at this. Um, are you cool with me taking this over? And like, again, like you don't have to pay me, but if I improve it, just give me a percentage of mm -hmm. that. I was like, sure. So I started looking at sponsorships and, and this was so interesting because I came from a perspective like completely outside of podcasting, right? Like I didn't understand completely how it was done. So I looked up all of these articles, um, Pat Flynn's article, and I think like there was an EOFI article about how ads are sold. And it mentioned something called a CPM, which is how like ads are currently sold, which is for every thousand downloads, you get like $25, let's say at a 25 CPM. So I was like, but that doesn't make sense because Andrew's audience versus someone else who like maybe doesn't have that much of a brand with entrepreneurs it cannot be valued at the same mm -hmm. rate. So I started like talking to a few sponsors and I remember, I still remember like our first conversation with, was with a company called TopTal. And I basically approached it in a completely different way. I was like, hey, let's forget the CPM thing. Let me ask you like, how many customers do you think like if you sponsored Mixergy for a month, could we deliver? And they were like, I was like, yeah, I mean, like we could deliver like six customers, right? And they're like, yeah, we could. I'm like, okay. And like, how much do you, are you willing to pay for a customer from an acquisition cost perspective? And they gave me the number and we basically just like multiplied that. And with that, we more than doubled what Andrew was already charging for sponsorships. So we basically started selling it on a value right. basis uh, instead of a CPM basis. And so, so that's where I really like made my name in podcasting. In a year, we basically grew revenue like four times. I remember there was one particular day where this was also really funny because Mixergy for a long time only had one sponsor. So I had this conversation with mm -hmm. TopTal. They became our first partner and then HostGator became another partner in the same conversation. And then um, after HostGator was done, they both came back and they were like, okay, we want to sponsor again. I was like, how do I do that? Because Mixergy only has one sponsor. Mm -hmm. So I remember going to Andrew, I'm like, Andrew, what if we have two sponsors? And he first actually said no. And then like over time I convinced him and he said, okay, okay, let's try it out. And then basically we signed both of them. And I still remember there was one day where we made more revenue in that day than Mixergy had done all of the last year combined. Mm -hmm. 
and that was just insane i remember andrew like came over to my house we were like went out to like get a drink and celebrate but sort of like that's how i really like made a name for myself in podcasting is by taking one part of it and just improving it because i was a complete outsider and just thought of it very differently yeah interesting that goes back to the early day the very early days of like sponsorships right where and and rightfully so you know podcasters are very protective over their audience you know they've fought you know tooth and nail for every single listener so they want to make sure that the sponsors and whatever else, whatever the other kind of content that they're injecting into their their show feels on brand and and you know doesn't feel abrasive but the number of shows that have you know more than one sponsor these days of course you know it's just it's just not even a thing so uh, it just goes to show exactly. you know how much things have evolved yeah, and just to sort of like end that story, we basically kept doing the same thing. And, and here's a, the most important point for listeners is all of this works if you can deliver on what you're promising. So if you get a sponsor like this and you don't deliver results, like none of this matters, mm -hmm. right? So we did a lot of different like things to make sure that sponsors get results. We would do email campaigns along with sort of like mentioned in the podcast, because if you like add something actually, like a new bundle that, then going back to like a CPM becomes much harder for the sponsor too, because like, you're doing two completely different things. We would like give them the ability to retarget people who came to Mixer G through Facebook ads. So we did a lot of experiments and to their credit, to like Mixer G's credit, Andrew has a really great audience and the sponsors kept getting results. And now like five years later, last year, HostGator and TopTal were still our sort of like main title sponsors. And we basically grew the sponsorship revenue from when we started to more than 10X to more than like half a million a year. So it's a huge change. Another thing we changed was most podcasters like don't actually know who their next sponsor is going to be like next week or two right. weeks later, right? And it's like this like very sort of thing where this this thing that you like is supporting you and you're working on, you don't know like if it's actually going to generate revenue next mm -hmm. month. Um, and I was like, how do we change that? So I was actually watching this episode of Million Dollar Listing, and I swear this relates. Uh, one of the agents in there is Frederick Frederick Eklund, and he was doing a launch for a building in New York. And I remember he had like this like big poster board that he puts up and he basically like starts like, okay, like he's like, this is our launch target and starts coloring it. And like, as they sell more apartments in the building. And I was like, how do we apply this to podcasting? So what I started doing is basically around like September of every year, I would start emailing all our past sponsors and the ones that were interested, basically being like, okay, hey guys, um, we're having conversations for sponsorships for next year. We plan on closing at least Q1 out in the next three weeks. Let me know what time works and let's schedule a call. And so we would schedule a call. And the first time I did it, it was insane. I think we sold out 80% of the whole of next year in, in that month. Mm -hmm. So basically going into the year, 80 or 90% of sponsor slots would be filled for Mixer mm -hmm. G. And we would also incentivize people to do long-term by basically offering discounts for like uh, long-term, like at five or 10%. And yeah, so basically with this, we took something that was making okay revenue, 10x it, and made it something actually that was more fun for both the sponsors and for Mixergy. And our retention was insane. Yeah, that's that's really smart. I really like that. And, you know, it just goes to show, I mean, there's a lot of, within the world of podcasting and as a podcaster, there's so many things you got to manage. And even, you, you've mentioned sponsorships, but even content itself, you know, can feel like you're on a hamster wheel, right? I was like, what's the next episode? What's the next episode? And just being able to forecast out a little bit and have people coming to you as opposed to you, you know, feeling like behind the eight ball is, is just a really powerful idea. Talking a little bit about monetization, so what's some of the more interesting stuff that you've worked on outside of sponsorships? Yeah, and, and I think this is the sort of like um, thing about sponsorships is while I did figure it out, what I realized was sponsorships really make sense if you're getting at least like five 
probably more than five, like at least like 10,000 downloads an episode. And, and so here's the thing, like most podcasters that are starting out actually want to get to sponsorships, but it's not, it isn't the best way to monetize because there's so much other things that you can do beforehand. Uh, so some of the more interesting stuff I've looked at is I always ask people to sort of like make a decision in terms of one, like what sort of revenue they want to make from their podcast. And then let's say like someone wants to make $100,000, right? There's basically this equation of either you can charge one person 100000 or you can ten, charge like 10 people 10000 or you can charge 100 people 1000 mm-hmm. And you want to really know like where you are because that influences one, like where your selling price point is. And then based on that, what you offer. There's a really great article by Legion on sort of like the 100 fans mm-hmm. framework and how people are now moving from paying podcasters just for support mm-hmm. to actually something that they get from them that they value, mm-hmm. right? So once you make that decision of like what price point do you want to be at, the next step is actually to like understand your audience. And like most podcasters have no idea who their audience is. So the thing I always tell people is um, instead of talking at your audience, start talking to your audience. So if you already have an audience, go, get on like calls with 10 people from your audience. And there's actually, you can look at look this up. There's this thing called the 10 smart market diagnosis questions, which is basically a series of questions in, in sort of like the, the frame of customer development to understand what your audience is going through. So I actually remember I had a, a client, JB Lossinger, who runs the Morning Coach podcast. And he had this like membership site when I first started working with him and people weren't really using it. And I was like, what else do your listeners want? And he did this thing where he basically sent an email, got on phone calls with his listeners and started asking them these questions and did a survey. And I still remember this. So he sent in survey to someone and like had his response in front of him. And then the next day he was talking to someone and he realized like the problems that the person was talking about was were the same as the one from the survey the day before. And he just started repeating what the person has literally written in his Google survey and was like, hey, like what if like I have some sort of like coaching for you? Would that be worthwhile? And the guy's like, yes. And he's like, okay, what if it was like 2000 a month for three months? And he was like, yeah, I'm in. And literally like right there, he made $6,000. And then within the next 21 days, he grew that to... 10,000 a month with like different people. Instead of looking at like just sort of advertising, podcasters should start looking at their audiences and then see what are the problems they can solve. So because so you can solve it through a coaching program. Let's say the problem is through a software, then you can do an affiliate deal with some software provider or even like what, what is happening now is creators are starting to get equity in companies, right? So it's like sort of like moving that monetization model from sponsorship to affiliate to actually getting equity in companies or creating your own products. And, and that's where I'm like super excited about where this podcasting and like more general sort of like creator market is going, where the creators, because they own their audience, are now becoming entrepreneurs. Yeah, I love that. And, and I especially love the thing that I haven't heard before um, that you just mentioned is that framework of just breaking down, do I want one paying customer or 10 or 100 or 1,000? And, and that then affecting the the price point. Obviously, with Supercast, you know, like we, you know, we, we certainly talk, you know, all day, every day, you know, with creators that are coming up with uh, different subscription models and different value offerings that they're providing to their audience. And, and just as you were talking, my mind was going to, okay, we've got a lot of customers that certainly for, you know, $5 a month, for $10 a month, you know, they're providing benefits like, you know, ad-free feeds and maybe, you know, like a monthly AMA. So, you know, kind of pretty easy stuff to do. And then as you overlay some of that more exclusive content and maybe merch, it gets up into 10 to $15. But then we also have teachable creators, you know, people that have created courses uh, that they charge, you know, like $300 a month for. This one in particular I'm thinking for is, is a course targeted at electricians, 
to help them level up their business from being, you know, a solo electrician. You know, again, you, you feel like, you know, you're a slave to your business and, you know, you can only kind of reach a certain ceiling when it comes to how big you can grow your business to actually like running a team of electricians and scaling your business and, you know, having things on autopilot and being able to transform, you know, your, your livelihood. That's that's his course and he's, he's created that on Teachable. But the very first episode of that on Teachable is go sign up to my private podcast. And in his particular sense, it makes a ton of sense because electricians are in their van all day. You know, so a podcast, they can't watch videos all the time, but they can listen to podcasts, you know, on a regular basis. And it also extends the longevity of his, you know, monthly subscription. You know, you can get the, to the end of a course, but a podcast, you know, just keeps going and going and going. And of course, there's always new ways for you to learn about how to market, you know, your your business or um, Google search algorithms updating and so on that that you, you want to stay on top of. So even within, you know, our customer base, I certainly see that there is that diversity of people offering, you know, different things at different price points that that are a good fit for their specific audience. Yeah, and, and the cool thing with this is like one is that you don't have to choose, right? You can do both. Uh, you can have a $2,000 course. So let's say like, so there's a, let's take the electrician example. Someone, let's say, does like marketing for electricians and charges 2000 a month or whatever. So they can have their service or course or whatever for electricians, but then not everyone can pay that, mm -hmm. right? And then there's this whole subset of the market or their audience that maybe is sort of like just the, the relationship is just either free content with them. Like you could create, like, like you said, like a premium podcast and charge like 10 bucks a month, which is now uh, so many more people can buy. And then you build that paying relationship with them and they start leveling up. And then like at some point they will be ready for that upper tier. There's that like sort of like having that tiered approach with like different products at different price points, because then you can sort of segment and hit all parts of your audience. Yeah. Um, and I think like to, to your guys' credit, that was really hard to do before uh, tools like Supercast came along because now it just like, it, it's so easy for a podcaster to do this. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for some of the bigger creators out there or, or even, you know, for, for people aspiring, everyone's challenge, of course, is building an audience. Uh, everyone, you know, could use a few more downloads per episode. Um, so interested to learn, you know, what are some of the lessons that you gained helping people like Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, Andrew Warner, you know, to, to build their audience? So, so the first thing I'll start with is, um, and this is something I had to learn when I started my show, especially because I came from this like background of working with so many top shows and my, I realized like my expectations were completely warped when I did mm -hmm. my launch because I was expecting like thousands of downloads and like angels will be singing and all. I was like, nope. Um, so I think the first lesson for any creator to understand is that barring and most exceptions, the creator growth journey sort of like goes like this. And if you're listening and not, not watching, it's like a very slow climb. It's funny, you can actually go to like uh, MKBHD or like uh, Mr. Beast on YouTube and see like their initial videos didn't get that many views until much later. So first, the first thing is like actually just understanding what game you're playing. I, I think the biggest lesson I learned from working with Andrew and, and, and Tim and Seth was this the sort of idea where what people try and do usually is whenever you ask someone like, who's your audience? And they're like, everyone. Like, I want to reach the whole world, right? And that never happens. Like, all creators sort of, like, start in a niche. And then, like, as they sort of, like, get better and better, it gets broader and broader. But, like, the thing they're talking about is almost, like, always the same thing. I think the perfect example is, like, the Tim Ferriss show. When he wrote the 4-Hour Workweek, he had a very specific segment. He actually talks about in the episode he did with How I Built This, where he was basically targeting San Francisco males 
who men who or women who worked in tech between the ages of 25 and 35. And so like that's how he started and then he started expanding over time over time over time. What what is interesting though is if you actually look at what Tim talks about still is almost the same thing as what he started with, with which is deconstructing peak performers. So that sort of like topic is still the same and it's just expanded over time into like different uh, superstars, different people who he interviews, but the core always remains the same. With that, when we did paid media for him, we were able to figure out like a few things um, without going into detail of what they were, like that would sort of like be very specific and niche, but at the same time applicable to a huge audience. And that's sort of what unlocked that next level of growth when we were doing paid marketing because then we could like start running the ads like in India and all these different countries. I remember there was one point where we would run Facebook ads and we actually just started taking off all the targeting. So we would just literally run an ad to people in the United States between 13 and 65 plus and it would just start converting because we sort of like understood what that core thing that people wanted from him was. Interesting. So I would love to dive into that a little bit more because selfishly, you know, like I, I just don't know a lot about, you know, running paid ads to grow a podcast. Uh, and um, mm-hmm. it's not something that we talked about, you know, before on this podcast. So like without getting too specific into Tim's and maybe, you know, I'm sure you've got, you know, kind of general advice across other creators. What's the opportunity to somebody and how should they like think about experimenting with with paid media when it comes to, you know, growing an audience? Yeah, so so I can share sort of like my show with the sort of caveat that it is still like something we're experimenting with and like figuring out how to make work. Because the biggest challenge right now is, uh, or challenge that existed before with Facebook was you couldn't actually create a closed loop to see how the ads worked. So like the way like you really got to get good at Facebook marketing is you write a Facebook ad and you do like a lot of experiments. So let's say you want to test like four different images, 10 different audiences, two different sort of like copy variations that's four times two times 80 so you're like times 10 so you basically test like 80 different ads right right? you send traffic to a landing page facebook gets information about which landing page like which ad is working better in terms of conversion because you have a pixel on that page and then you sort of like cut the ads that don't work and double down on the ones that do so sort of like that's the strategy with facebook uh the problem with itunes is if you send traffic to the itunes player there's no way to return any feedback because you can't pixel the player so for a long time, like we weren't able to do that. So, what so we you don't know whether they actually listen. Exactly. Um, so what we would do for clients as a proxy is instead of sending traffic to iTunes, we would just send traffic to a landing mm. page that would capture an email because then you can actually like measure and optimize that, improve that over time, and then just email people every episode through that email list. So that's what we were doing. With my show, we basically figured out a way to get traffic or buy traffic outside of Facebook. So we were basically using like all of these, like a bunch of like third-party affiliate networks and sites. Like we showed ads in blogs, we showed ads in like mobile apps. So let's say like you opened up a mobile app on your phone and you could see like, you'd see an ad at the bottom of the bar that when you clicked would take you straight to iTunes. And through some code that who I worked, the person I worked with wrote, who, which I still completely don't understand the code <laughs> part, but we were basically able to like send data back from that and know which of the ads were working. So that was sort of like the innovation that we made. And through that, we were able to measure how the ads were doing. Another thing that I don't think actually applies anymore, but was for that time when I launched, is what we realized was iTunes cared more about sort of like the rate of growth of, a, of downloads for a podcast more than absolute mm-hmm. growth. So for example, if a podcast has a thousand downloads and gets a, gets a thousand downloads more, there's more of an impact on rankings than if a podcast that has a hundred thousand downloads gets another thousand. 
because the velocity is right. much more. So we sort of like used that combo to spend money on ads for, for my podcast. And it basically like ran it up the charts. And at its height, it was number 25 across all US shows, which was crazy because like I had started without any prior audience. As anyone who does paid media will tell you, um, unless you can take that money and convert that into ROI and like make more, like let's say you spend a dollar, unless you can make more than a dollar back, it isn't smart to keep spending on it unless you're a VC company that is just throwing away right. money for, for reach, right? So that's the part we're now working on is both directly, indirectly, like one, how do you monetize? And then how do you actually measure that and like make sure those there's sort of like a through line in terms of buying the ad to knowing that led to revenue, which is where I'm like super excited to experiment really soon with like paid podcasting, because if I can buy ads and spend a thousand dollars on ads and it leads to revenue in terms of premium memberships, that's more than a thousand, then we can basically like keep spending and like use that to build an audience. Yeah, absolutely. We have some creators on our platform that do use paid media to drive through to uh, paid membership, you know, they, because th there is, like you say, that direct like monetization opportunity, you get people to listen, they like it, and then you get them to sign up as a, as a paid listener to access the exclusive content. And they've been asking us for us to, to, to add tracking, you know, like to your point, you know, you want to be able to close that loop. So that's something that we're exploring right now is like, how do we provide people with the ability to run the ad and see at the other end, you know, a certain percentage of those actually ended up you know being sponsors and, and therefore that uh, justifies the ROI and this is a very actually something I think like I'm really pumped if, if you guys unlock that because it, going back to that framework of like how many customers do you want and at what price point one, one thing that I didn't mention is like if you only have customers at a higher price point obviously like you have to do like more hand-holding and it's like higher touch right whereas if you have a membership for 10 to 20 dollars a month it's much more low touch, so it's easier to add more people. So if, if Supercast can enable that tracking and you can make the economics work and the additional sort of like output for a creator to do a premium podcast is not that much in terms of like, you just have to do an AMA or like record a few pre more premium episodes right. a month. It will just enable monetization in a much different way for this class of creators that maybe isn't doing something premium and yeah it's it's just super exciting yeah and look what you know what i have just been blown away by also is the retention that our creators have you know like and the fact that um it is you know the passion economy is all about that ability to build the audience and connection with the audience and people are paying yeah they're paying for exclusive content but they're also paying for access you know deeper access to somebody that they deeply respect and who will they they willfully put into their ear repeatedly you know many times a week in some cases over and over and over again so they already have a deep connection to that person whether they're paying or not and then when they pay it's because that they respect that voice so much that they you know they they just want to take it you know one step even further that retention aspect compared to a course increases, you know, like what we in the tech world know as lifetime value, you know, like, so, so somebody that continues to pay you month after month after month just means that if you were to think about what that subscriber brings in monetary terms, it means that, you know, you could actually, in a lot of cases, probably, you know, afford to spend, you know, a little bit more to to be able to get more of those kinds of people so we're not there yet you know we haven't kind of like worked everything out in terms of you know how creators should necessarily like think of that but um you know i definitely think there's something in that i'm curious like if you can share some some data around like the retention piece because one of my assumptions before we met was that if i did a premium podcast there's probably a number like a churn percentage where every sort of like six months i would have to replace 
the that like cohort of premium subscribers. Um, like th- that's what I've learned from like looking at like SaaS marketing. I- is that true in the case of premium subscribers, or do people stay on for much longer um, and churns less? Yeah, so we are seeing like really good retention. Obviously, it, it depends, you know, on your vertical. It depends on your price point, and it depends on the, the value you're offering. You, you know, people that are offering things like AMAs and, and merchandise, and then also like maybe a, a monthly Google Hangout or something like that. You know, they they're able to charge a higher price point and, and have higher retention. But you know, generally, we're seeing you know kind of in the single digits, sometimes in the you know low to mid single digits in terms of like uh, monthly churn, which is just you know pretty pretty low you like it we just see time and time again you know the bases they're they're growing and growing and growing you know we I, I can't think of a single creator on our platform that's going backwards that that's insane and one thing i just thought of is if if one of the benefits that people are offering is monthly amas or like sort of like more closer access man what a wonderful way to take a subset of your audience is willing to pay you that you build a deeper relationship with and start doing customer development, start learning more about their problems to then sell more premium pot products down the line. Absolutely. Or, you know, other variants of that are, you know, a closed Facebook group, a closed, you know, Slack community. Um, Circle is, you know, now kind of a popular tool for being able to, you know, white label that kind of uh, community experience. There's a multitude of different ways that people are fostering deeper connection with their audience. And uh, our approach to that is, you know, very much to support the open ecosystem. We don't force people to download an app, you know, when it comes to like listening to their private feed, you know, they can do that in the podcast player they're already using. And similarly, if a creator says, hey, I've got a Facebook group already, you know, like I'd love to bring that in as part of my community or I want to establish one, then you know, they're, they're free to, to choose the tool of the, that they like and, and include that into either their overall program or creating even special tiers, you know, so maybe for five bucks, you just get the private feed. And then for 10 bucks, you get the feed plus access uh, to the community plus, you know, bonus episodes. Yeah, I, I, I want to share a quick anecdote with you. Um, I think it was like two or three weeks ago, I was actually listening to one of your episodes and I was like basically like walking around like I love listening like walking and listening to podcasts and it got to the end and then you talked about sort of like the bonus section and I was like wait I need to listen to this and only like tapped on my phone and I think it, it took like 30 Success. seconds and like I was like yeah I was like listening to the bonus episode and I, I just sort of like love how seamless that experience was yeah look um Glad to hear it. That's, you know, part of, you know, our philosophy here at Supercast, you know, is just to kind of eat our own uh, dog food, so to speak, and, you know, use our own product. And, you know, obviously we don't charge anything for people to be able to get access to that bonus content. But the whole idea is we would just love for, for more podcasters to be able to experience, hey, it's actually... It doesn't have to be hard to get people mm-hmm. to to become paying subscribers to your product. So it brings me joy that you that you uh, liked that experience. Yeah, it was it was so simple. Zooming out a little bit, what are you excited for when it comes to just general trends in podcasting and audio? Yeah, I think for me is one is the sort of like what is going to happen in terms of like just the proliferation of audio. Um, I think we had the craziest year last year in terms of like number of podcasts started. I think it's now over 1.8 million uh, podcasts started. And so like both those numbers are are going up. Um, I, I really sort of like have this belief that like inside every person is that creator who wants to sort of like explore that creative interest. And I feel like podcasting more than any medium is super easy to do. Seth Godin has this really great quote. Um, he talks, he says like, a lot of people say they have like writer's block, but not many people say they have talker's block. Because it's just like, and, and you don't really need that much to start podcasting, right? You can get Anchor, you can do it on your phone. So I'm, I'm just really excited about 
this sort of like wave of new potential creators that are coming onto the medium. I'm excited for what's happening with the creator economy. Uh, Legion, who I referenced, in, referenced before, wrote this piece, piece uh, in HBR about the sort of like upcoming middle class in the creator economy. Because right now it is true that like most of the returns sort of like go to people at the top. But now there's this like big middle class being created. What do we need to do for that? Like what do we need for people to have like sustainable creative careers where maybe people can have a part-time job and then like half the time they're doing that and that supports them and half the time like they can spend on something creative that then like start supporting them and they can go full-time on that. So those possibilities and that sort of like exploration and new frontier, um, super exciting. Yeah. And, you know, that's the the power of the internet, right? Like the internet is supposed to be this thing that just enables niche, you know, like a niche communities and niche discussions, you know, at infinitely massive scale because when you were restricted to your town, you know, if you cared about, you know, like jumpers for dogs, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily that easy to find uh, people that were also passionate about knitting jumpers for dogs. But, you know, at a global scale, there would be hundreds, if not thousands and, and tens of thousands of people that might be interested in, in similar topics. Let's jump back into, I guess, the On Deck Podcaster Fellowship. So coming back to that, what can people expect from the program? Yeah, so, so some of the stuff we talked about, it was sort of like a mini introduction to what is going to happen. Um, like I mentioned, and this is like speaking from my personal experience, like podcasting or any sort of like creative thing can be a, a lonely endeavor. And what we wanna create is that support system, is that community for you as you're going through the journey. So we'll have discussions and topics like growth, monetization, improving your craft. And we recently had Marshall, who you also know, join, who he hosts the Realignment Podcast and like spent a year and a half, I think, at PBS. So he'll be there in there, like providing support from the production side. We're super excited to have Supercast in there too, from just like the monetization side, supporting our fellows. And yeah, it's I, I'm I'm really looking at this as like sort of like creating the, this incubator to train the next generation of podcasting talent, and like hopefully like in like the next like year or five years we find the next joe rogan from there yeah amazing i would you know love to be able to be able to tell that story that uh yeah in the very first cohort we found that you know we could we uh helped the, the next joe rogan um and so on that note you know who should think about joining the fellowship who is it right for is it you know people that haven't yet started something is it for established podcasters does it dependent on location it's completely global um i've had conversations uh, in the last couple of weeks from people in South America, people in Europe, someone from Pakistan, people in Africa. So, so it does not tie to location. Um, I think there's really like three groups that are, are a good fit. The first is uh, actually seasoned podcasters, because if you've been podcasting for a while, if you have like over 100 episodes or whatever, and you haven't maybe like enabled monetization or like you feel like you're at a plateau, the, the sort of like community dynamics with the expert speakers that are coming in will sort of like help you unlock to that next level. The second group is people who have an audience somewhere else, but are looking to get into podcasting. Mm -hmm. So two examples actually are Luba, who was on a on that webinar we did, uh, Q&A we did like two weeks ago. She has a very sort of like targeted YouTube following and has been looking to get into podcasting for a while, but just doesn't know all the frameworks, wants more of a community for support. And for she's looking at this as, eight weeks, I'm going to get in, I'll have all the frameworks, I'll have a community and leave with the podcast created. So we have her doing that. Another person who's doing that is Maddie Mo, who runs the, if you Google the most famous artist, like he's like the number one result, has a Instagram following, TikTok following already. So translate that into podcasting. And the third is just people who are curious. Like, like let's say you're 
a VC who is looking to sort of like build a brand and showcase your network or get deal flow, or you're just someone who's like insatiably curious and wants to learn about a topic, I think anyone in that bucket, podcasting is a great way to reach anyone you want. For example, like if you email someone and you're like, hey, can I pick your brain? They're usually like, nah, or whatever, right? But if you email someone and you're like, hey, I have a podcast, can I interview you? Suddenly like people will just like open mm-hmm. doors. So for people who want to do that and learn about a new topic, there's nothing better than podcasting. So those are sort of like generally like three groups that are a great fit for the program. Even from this podcast from Supercasters, you know, the things that have come from conversations are just crazy. You know, I think I've shared with you, but Michael El Cecil, who just joined, you know, co-creator of Radio Lab, he was episode number five of Supercasters and, and you know, had no no intent, no, no idea that, you know, that could even be a possibility. Uh, but then, you know, he reached out to me a month later and and said, hey, you know, I just, I see you've got a role, you know, for a partnership sleeve and I just can't stop thinking about it. And, you know, lo and behold, um, after a couple of conversations, he ends up, you know, joining Supercast. So it's a very special medium. I can certainly uh, attest to that. How much does it cost to, to join and, and how do people uh, apply for the program? Yeah, so the, the cost of the fellowship is 1990 so almost $2,000 about 1700 euros. That said, we also do have scholarships that have been enabled by alumni and sort of the on-deck access fund because we don't want it to be cost prohibitive for people to right. join. So so if people have questions, like feel free to just um, either go on our site at beyonddeck.com slash podcasters to apply or just email me. Uh, my email is sachit, S-A-C-H-I-T at beyonddeck.com or find me on Twitter. But yeah, just for me, I'm super excited about the medium. I think we're in like such an early innings, um, especially with like now, like the proliferation of AirPods and like people just like looking for more content to hear. Yeah, it's it's gonna keep growing. Absolutely. And yeah, like as as uh, we've already alluded to, Supercast, you know, absolutely, you know, we're proud to be uh, associated. Um, we'll be there, you know, throughout the entire cohort to help with monetization help. And yeah, excited to be helping the movers and shakers of the podcasting world alongside, you know, the other great mentors that they've got. So, you know, Harry Stebbings, David Perel, Pomp, Patrick O'Shaughnessy from Invest Like the Best, you know, those are some of uh, our idols as well. So um, excited to be amongst fine company. Touch it, you know, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks, folks. You know, thanks for tuning into this episode. And if you want to hear more about how you can join the On Deck Podcaster Fellowship, that is beondeck.com. So B E O N D E C K.com slash podcasters. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.